Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Theologians love to philosophize about the darkness in the world because, like politicians, they fancy the work of their own hands as a city of light set upon a hill. They see themselves as the administrators of light in a world gone astray. Nothing could be further from the story of the Bible which shines its powerful light to expose the darkness in each of us, unimpeded by our crafty designs on self-importance. When we are personally touched by the pain-filled light of Scripture, we find ourselves grappling with something we refuse to see. A darkness that fills everything we say, do, create, maintain, and defend. In the case of Luke, the latter is represented by the temple in Jerusalem. However, for the average listener who likes to complain about the hypocrisy of the local priest, ask yourself, how much do you spend on your house, your car, your entertainment or your savings versus the poor? How are your household, your family, or your friends any different than the temple in Luke or any other institution? To the extent that any of these draw a line between you and the beggar, they're not. At this point, a flood of justifications and rationalizations enter your mind. If this were a sermon, you might take the message personally and lash out in some way. Why? Not because you love money and security, per se, or because you are sick of hearing the same message. You are, of course, but this is not the main issue. The real concern is, one, you want to be right with God, or at least, you want to be right in general. And two, the part of you that is honest knows that you are going to keep your house, buy the things that you want to buy, and you have no plans to invite a beggar to sleep in your spare room. So you are stuck. You either have to lie to yourself about the words of Scripture or accept your place among the brood of vipers hailed by John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3. Another option, of course, is to complain that the Bible does not make sense. But this is also a lie. It does make sense. You just don't like what it says, because the truth is, you can't do it. Few of us can, except the rare birds who give their life for the teaching, which presently excludes all of us. In the end, if you are an honest person, you can either bow down to Scripture, confess your sins, and learn from them, or you can walk away feeling justified. The choice, as they say, is up to you. 
Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verses 10 to 14. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 473 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Scripture is difficult. It's depressing and often annoying because Scripture is repetitive. Scripture deals with what is painfully obvious. Not only what is difficult to hear... But what is difficult to do, what is often insulting to our intelligence, yet it insists upon it and keeps repeating it. And that is probably why people always return to complicated philosophical and theological formulae to console themselves, because that is intellectually stimulating and creates layers and layers of soft pillows with which to soothe yourself from the bruises you receive from the hard-hitting reality of sin. That's just how it is. We human beings don't do what we are supposed to do, and it's uncomfortable and difficult and painful. We just heard this text in the Gospel of Luke set us up to be put exactly in the difficult position of being the unexceptional addressee of the painful message, not only of Deuteronomy, but as Father Paul pointed out just this week on Tarazi Tuesdays, the basic message of Exodus, that if you don't do what the law of Moses asks you to do on Sinai, that's the covenant of Sinai, what we hear in Deuteronomy. I put you in the land and I can take you out if you don't do what I asked you to do on Sinai. That's what Luke is saying here. That's the condemnation of the temple. But the difficult message of Deuteronomy is no one ever does it, which means no one ever gets to rest on their laurels in the land of promise. Now, you tell me who, on Sunday morning, coming to the temple, wants to hear that message. Who? Nobody wants to hear it. And I can tell you as a priest, people near and far have made it very clear that they don't want to hear that message one way or another, directly or indirectly. People, and who could blame them, are sick of that message some more honest than others (laughs) when they hear it. Very early on, understand that this is not the message for them. Some eventually, it really mirrors the parable of the sower. The seed is sown and people sooner or later choke on the message or try to choke the message, however you want to phrase it. And here we are once again in the Gospel of Luke, After all of this setup, it comes down to this basic question of doing the very basic things that are required of you. Now, you might say what everyone who skips church loves to say 
embedded in a long list of platitudes. Well, Father Mark, if it's about love, then why bother with all of this? Well, just take a look around. Are people really doing what is required of themselves to love each other? You know, with the whole faith versus works question, people are trying to get the right answer. The correct answer is, you're wrong. (laughs) Whichever side of that debate you fall on, you're wrong. The works people say, well, you know, basically, as long as you're a nice person and doing the right thing. The faith person says, well, as long as you believe that Jesus is the Savior, you're fine. But John the Baptist his words don't fall in either one of those camps. His thing is that, you know, if you think you're here on your faith, you don't need to be here because your faith should be strong enough, I guess. So why would you show up? And if you're here for your works, let me just ask you a couple questions and we'll find out that your works are a fraud. As you said, Father, it's truly an impossible message. And that is why people like to talk about hyperbole or they explain away or the old conversation about a camel going through the eye of the needle. And people come up with different explanations and stories about how this is actually possible. The thing about a camel going through the eye of the needle, you take the biggest animal that anybody knows and the smallest hole that anybody knows and try to work out the math there. Physics doesn't allow it. That's it. You maybe get one hair of a camel through the eye of a needle and that's it. So you can come up with stories that make it possible. And then you've missed the point of the story. The point of the story is that it is impossible. Sell everything you have and give to the poor. Well, you know, that's not really what the point is. What it's saying is just don't think about money so much. No, no, that's not what it's saying. It's actually saying sell everything. It's really an impossible message. If we don't take that to heart and we try to make it palatable, we're imposing something on the text. It's not fair to the text. We're no longer reading the text. We are telling the text what it should say. So in fact, we need to listen to the text and follow what it says. And John the Baptist is, like I said last time, he's making an accusation against the people that really is logically difficult to get out of. So we're going to see from this that John the Baptist is continuing to tell people to do things that they just can't do. And that's where the bar is set. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, then what shall we do? On the one hand, it's a good question. It's a logical question. On the other hand, it's an irritating question for the prophet Because you have in front of you the five books of Moses. You know what you're supposed to do. You just don't want to do it. And that's why this whole monologue began. The question is invalid because you already know what you're supposed to do. Notice, it seems like a good question, but it's invalid because you already have the five books of Moses, you brood of vipers. You know what you are supposed to do. The law is written. That's the trap. That's the game. You know how teachers love to say at the university, there's no such thing as a bad question? It may be so in certain fields of study. It is not so in the biblical story. In the biblical story, the only valid question 
is to search scripture in order to be interrogated by its monologue. I'm going to say that again. The only valid mode is to search scripture so that it can search you. Remember that beautiful verb, darash. So that even when you supposedly interrogate scripture, you are being interrogated. That's why the question, then what shall we do, is technically scripturally invalid. It's part of the story, but it's a setup. If you have to ask that, it means you haven't been listening to the books of Moses. That's the trap. And of course, the prophet now is going to shame them by telling them the obvious. And then they're going to get irritated if they're like the average person who comes to hear the explanation of the reading, which we call a homily on Sunday morning, or if you happen to be Jewish on Saturday, or if you happen to be Muslim on Friday. The minute somebody explains the sacred text, you feel condescended to, if they're explaining the text, if they are philosophizing and theorizing, you don't feel condescended to. You say, oh, that was really fascinating, Father. If you can say that, that means they didn't explain the sacred text because the sacred text is pointing out to you that your questions are invalid. This is important, Father, to think about this question. What do they want John to do for them? They have the books of Moses. I mean, John the Baptist could just say, review your notes. <laughs> you already know everything. I can't tell you anything new. I mean, he started off the whole sermon with a question. Who warned you? Why did you bother showing up here? And they didn't answer the question. They started asking questions. Who's asking the questions around here, as they say in the cop shows, right? What shall we do? I mean, this is a shortcut for people. Okay, John, you tell us, and then we'll make sure to tick off the boxes, and then we know that we're right. You know, it's like when the students say to the teacher, can you tell us what's going to be on the test? Is this going to be on the test? Is this going to be on the test? Is this going to be on the test? Well, why do the students ask that? Because they don't want to bother learning or studying something that isn't on the test. Because they're more interested in the test than actually gaining the knowledge. That's the problem. And this is what these people are doing. They want to know how to be right as opposed to hear the text and be faithful servants. And he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. Anyone hearing these two examples would say, obviously. Well, maybe not all examples, because today in 2023 in the United States, there'd be lots of debate on CNN and Fox News about verse 11. Are you a capitalist? Are you a socialist? I have news for you. I'm neither. 
Okay, neither. I'm not interested in your is me. With all due respect, go back and rehear Galatians, you lovers of your isms. I really believe that verse 11 would be the big sticking point of 2023, Richard, to be completely honest. But for most human beings living in most centuries, none of these verses would be a big sticking point. Most people would agree, yes, obviously this is the way a decent person would behave. But the question is, why is it so hard? Why is it dang near impossible for people to behave this way even some of the time? Now, we imagine that we behave this way most of the time. That's what we call civility and decency. But what we call civility and decency and propriety is our self-projection. I often say that Obama is how Americans see themselves and Trump is who we actually are underneath. That's the dualism. It's the same thing with the Avenger movies. We all project or imagine and see ourselves as Captain America, but the truth of what we are is the narcissism and the nihilism of Tony Stark. We all imagine that as decent people, we all agree. You know, we have the self-image of what we call Midwestern decency. We think that we are verses 11 through 14, but we're not. If we even were that way 20% of the time, we would transform the face of the planet. So we are deluded somehow. And at the same time, irritated with the persistence and the repetition of the biblical message. Yeah, yeah, we've heard it. It's depressing. It's annoying. Why keep repeating it? Why not have a more positive, uplifting message? Well, the response to that, the scriptural response is, what about the guy who doesn't have a tunic? What about the person getting ripped off by your tax scheme? What about the person who's been accused falsely so that you wouldn't have to pay the price for your mistakes? And it doesn't have to be something dramatic and public. There's all kinds of positioning and lying and denials taking place in small ways and big ways every day in human life. What about all of the extortion that takes place? What about all the crimes that take place during war? You think that crime only happens on one side of the line during battle? What about all the evils that take place in order to sustain, quote, our way of life? Do you honestly think that we take these examples here in this text seriously? Oh yeah, religion is simple. We just need to do these basic things. We don't need to keep hearing the difficult message that interrogates us and keeps putting pressure on us to change our ways, Father Mark. And this is where, Richard, I keep going back to the message of 1 Samuel. It's not the prophet they hate. It's God that we addressees of the gospel hate because we don't want to hear that we have to change in such a painful way so as to be able to even realize that we're not doing what John the Baptist is asking of us here in Luke. This is supposed to be placing our eyes on what the other person doesn't have and how we serve those around us. Another side of that, 
which is what I talked a lot about in my Hosea commentary, the origin of sin being that human beings don't truly have faith that God is going to take care of them, so they have to make sure that they take care of themselves. When he says, whoever has two coats, give to somebody who has none, the question is, why do you have two coats? You can only wear one. What do you need a second one for? Well, in case something happens to the first one. How did you get the first one? Did you work for it? Are you the one who labored for the sheep that provided the material to create the tunic? And so you're worried about having to work extra? Or are you afraid that the one who provided the cotton, who provided the wool, won't provide it for you? What about the food? Or what about your wages? Are you afraid that the wage God allowed you to get is not going to be enough? Are you afraid that your labor is what determines how much you get paid? Or do you believe that God is the one who takes care of you and gives you precisely what you need, according to his will? That's the root of evil. The root of evil is thinking that I have to take care of myself because God might not come through. That is what we find in Hosea, and that is what John is reminding everybody of. So we have the first example, which applies to everybody. You've got two coats, give away one. If you've got extra food, give away your extra food. Why do we pray, give us this day our daily bread? I have multiple days of bread up in my fridge and then a little extra in my freezer. I don't need God to give me my daily bread. I've got a, a few weeks. Maybe in a few weeks, give me some daily bread. Give me some daily bread on the back end just in case I run out and there's a snowstorm. That's what I'd like, God. Now God has become my order taker and my DoorDash. Okay? It's not okay. Did I talk about an impossible message before? I have an extra fridge. I have an extra freezer. I have a freezer, period. This is the hypocrisy that John is bringing to mind. And then with the publicans and the soldiers, he's telling them, you're not allowed to use your power to extract more. Why? Because the power was given to you from God, as well as the wages that you agreed to. Those are given to you by God. As soon as I believe that the company I work for pays me a wage because I do a darn good job, then when they kick me out the door because they found someone who has better skills than me, I'm offended. But when I remember that the company I work for has the power and the wages they have because God granted it to them, and God allots me a certain portion of that from his good grace, then when the company lets me go, I say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The question of what do we do is stop thinking so much about it. God's taking care of you. If you don't believe that God's taking care of you, and you believe that you have to take care of yourself by making deals with Baal, I can't help you. What can I do? If you don't believe that God takes care of you, why do you even bother listening to this book? Why are you talking about the children of Abraham? Why does any of this matter if you don't actually believe that there's one thing that God can do, and that's take care of you? Go reread Exodus. I mean, Father Paul's been talking about Exodus, how he's taking care of them in the wilderness. What's striking to me about verse 11, 12, 13, and 14 is that no matter what religion you are, no matter what tribe you're from, anyone hearing this would say, this 
seems just, this seems decent, this seems kind. It rings almost in my ear like the universal wisdom, as it were, of the book of Proverbs. I mean, just listen to the ring of this. The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. I mean, it has the ring of a kind of wisdom that no human being would disagree with. This is something to aspire to. And you had made the comment, Richard, that this is impossible. What's impossible is the impediment of, and I'm going to use an expression, and you're going to contextualize it in Greek philosophy and miss the point. I use this expression with great caution. What makes it impossible is our lack of, I could say self-knowledge, maybe use the expression self-awareness, but you're still going to contextualize that in such a way that you will strip it of the scriptural setting in which I'm using it. But the reality is the difficulty of being interrogated by scripture is that it exposes you to your own darkness. That's what's difficult. No human being is capable of doing any of this 100% of the time. Every single one of us, every single one of us is incapable of being perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect in the Gospel of Matthew. But if we are to have any hope of submitting to this even some of the time, we have to be constantly reminded of the truth of what we are and how we act most of the time. And that is the work of submitting to Scripture. That is the difficulty. That is, if you will, the part that nobody wants to deal with. You cannot actually do what John the Baptist is commanding you to do if you're not willing to sit and submit to and deal with the truth about your own behaviors and your own sins. That's why sermons have become philosophical, and that's why people love those types of sermons, and that's why no one wants to actually hear a preacher or a teacher explain the content of the biblical text. That's why it's unacceptable and boring and condescending to actually hear what people dismiss as fire and brimstone or, you know, the same old message every single week. But that's what the text says. In fact, I don't think that any preacher, including myself or even you, Rich, when you have occasion to preach, I don't think any of us would ever say to the assembly, you brood of vipers, but that's what John the Baptist is saying. You at least have to try to understand why the text is saying that. Because Luke is saying that this question, or rather, this accusation that we, the addressees, if we are submitting to the story and putting ourselves in the place of the one critiqued by the story, that we have to see a connection between the accusation and the judgment brood of vipers and the next step towards acting correctly according to the law of God, the law of Moses. 
That's the thing. The impossibility is facing the truth about ourselves, which is linked to the impossible God who can't be depicted and can't be seen, the iconoclastic God, the unseen God. Faced with this immovable object, this immovable tablet of Scripture, all we can do is bow or walk away. There is no other option. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.